Right now on Fast, President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy meeting minutes from now on the debt ceiling. The speaker saying ahead of the sit down, the talks are at a sensitive point. We'll get the very latest from Washington coming up. Plus, Jamie Dimon says the market should get ready for rates to keep climbing. He also said he can't do his job forever, but feels great about the next generation of leadership. The details from the JPM Investor Day straight ahead. And later, Pfizer gets set to get into the obesity game. New results in a pill form of their weight loss drug that they say may be as effective as the shot from Ozempic. We'll go inside the numbers. And Foot Locker getting kicked around again today. A look at all the retail names getting dragged down along with it. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Mike Coe. And we start off with the latest blow to an already strained U.S.-China relation. Beijing initiating a ban against Micron, listing the U.S. chipmaker as a risk because it failed a national security review. Micron slipping almost 3% on the news. It's the Nasdaq 100's worst performer today. The U.S. Commerce Department criticizing the China decision, a spokesperson stating, we firmly oppose restrictions that have no basis in fact. So what impact will these rising tensions have on the markets and the economy? And to some extent, we are girding for this. We are preparing for this. We thought this would happen. They were placed under review months ago um, with the tech ban on the U.S. We thought there would be some retaliation, Tim. Yeah, I, I think we've been bracing for this for a long time. And on the show, we've been talking about yes. this. And, and I think we've, we've posited that it actually could exist not just within the tech sector. And, and I think as you get into consumer products. But it's been very easy for any government from the beginning of time to lean back on. I think the, the call here is critical infrastructure. Um, now, really, if, if this is a tit for tat, um, the first part of that expression started uh, in May 15th, 2019, when, when Trump then banned Huawei. Um, and again, talked about telecoms uh, info and those companies that had exposure to critical U.S. infrastructure on the telecom side. So um, seemingly this has been going on, um, at least the intensity of this, uh, this battle has been going on for three years. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of geopolitics here because you think about South Korea, you think about Samsung, you think about SK Hynix, and you think about the, 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 the basically there's three players that produce 95% of the world's DRAM. And, and so it's going to be an issue, and it's going to require that the U.S. lean on their allies, and it's going to require that China push back, and it's going to require that we have these escalated tensions, and I think it's just the beginning. You know, it's interesting that they chose Micron here, and again, this has been under review for a couple months. If you think about Micron, I think in 2021, 11% of their sales come from China, but Qualcomm has 65% of their sales from China. Broadcom has 35%. Intel has 27%. So they picked a very commoditized product, which is memory, is DRAM, and, um, you know, so I, I think it's kind of interesting. It feels kind of benign. I thought the stock's reaction, surprisingly, it was down like 4 or 5% pre-market, and then it was at one point down about 2% or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, you know, so it, it, it's kind of interesting to me. And then here's a company that, again, pretty cyclical sort of stuff. They were dealing with shortages, then they were dealing with gluts. And then, you know, if you look at their earnings and sales down 50% year over year right now, they're kind of working through all of that here. So, again, I think the point is, is that this is not going to end anytime soon. I also thought it was weird as, as Biden's coming back from the G7, those, those headlines about, well, expect our relations to get better. Sometimes. I don't know where that comes shortly. from. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of odd. Something like me. that, yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in the timing of it is not, I mean, think about the communique from the G7 talking about de-risking from China. That came out. And then just hours later, this ban comes out yeah. on Micron. So it really does seem like, oh, you do that to me, we'll do this to you. Right. So when Dan, Dan gave the breakdown of the revenue that's derived from mm -hmm. China, Qualcomm is beaten up. The stock has been beaten up for a host of other reasons to begin with. But when you look at uh, AMD, that stock hasn't been beaten up for a host of other reasons. Micron, which is interesting, what's been the pixie dust lately? AI. 
And what does AI need to run on? NAND. So this to me is all a buying opportunity because it's not so dependent on China to begin with. On Dan's scale, this was one of the lowest that were dependent on China. And I think it's actually worth a visit on the buy side. Yeah, 11% of revenues from mainland China uh, in the past fiscal year, Mike Co. It did seem like a warning shot, precisely for what Brand, uh, Dan had mentioned. I mean, this is, you know, the chips that are needed for critical infrastructure. That's a very small part of what Micron sells into China. It's mostly for consumer devices. And so this felt sort of like, you know what, this is the way it feels on this scale, but we can ratchet that up. Yeah, I, I think this is a much more symbolic type of a mm-hmm. gesture for sure. I mean, consider WPG in Taiwan. They actually uh, generate more revenues for Micron than basically all of mainland China does. And as you point out, the affected areas, that's not going to encompass all of that 10%. I think Dan's really getting to the heart of the issue, though, which is that, you know, we're seeing these big revenue declines for Micron, and that is frankly because, you know, the demand for the products that their chips support is just not there. Uh, it is trading already at a little bit of a discount to the market at about 17 and a half times. You know, figure that over the last 10 years, they've averaged about 380 a share ish. That's the number I'm sort of going with. You know, and it's a cyclical business, so it should trade at a discount, especially in the current environment. I think this is, a, as Carter often likes to say, a, a pair of shoes. This isn't one that I would be interested in chasing on a mild decline like the one we saw today. I mean, the overall impact on the on the socks is pretty de minimis. I mean, the socks is up fractionally, pretty much in line with the market. So, I mean, is this some is this a reason, Tim? You would sort of rethink an investment in a Qualcomm or a Broadcom or any of these other chip makers that sell into China because of this threat of escalating tensions? The answer is yeah, uh, and I think we've just kind of begun to figure out what the discount rate is. But again, I, I think you, you think more about critical uh, customers, and to the extent that Qualcomm's been an Apple story, it's been it's been a, you know thinking about where people have their exposure. Um, I, I guess you know I ultimately look at where. Uh, we have been in terms of why Micron is more or less near kind of the top of, of a one-year range and why it's been working its way through, uh, you know, what has been, a, you know, a, an oversupply and falling prices in DRAM and NAND that have stabilized. And we've had different cyclical reads on this. But I, I do think that, it, you know, it's the same kind of argument that I think we put, I think we put a bit of a discount on Taiwan Semi at times when we were really talking about China, Taiwan, and, and where conflict was in, in you know, critical there and also where at some point the U.S. may say, hey, you know what, you're too close. And so I, I, I think there's going to be a reassessment of all of those firms that I've exposed. And, and isn't it all about the CHIPS Act anyway? So this started a while ago. So if, if that whole fight started somewhat a distance ago for the overall market, you're going to see this play out a little bit. What you think what, what I think you need is more people to get on the U.S. side versus China side. And maybe it helps them to ratchet down the rhetoric versus to ratchet it up. And where we're at right now uh-huh. is the ratcheting up of rhetoric from China based on what we heard today. But who about can, and I hear But who can join the U.S. side here? I mean, again, can South Korea, who's a major ally who just got back from the U.S. and sang American Pie or whatever? You know, I mean, but I, what can they really do? I'm just and, saying and, other countries, too. So just just just. Uh, on, on a rhetoric basis, maybe Europe can start 
toning it down or ratcheting it up against China because China really doesn't have a leg to stand on on a lot of these human rights issues. And it's odd to me that we're always playing sort of defense when it comes to China, where the whole world is bringing up the human rights element and China seems to be pushing that aside and powering forward on the business level where I think we should be looking at where the puck is going, not where it is. Well, I just say one, one thing on that, and which is very clear if you're a CEO of a U.S. multinational, you think to yourself, like, okay, we've been in a 2% growth environment GDP-wise for a very long time. Two-thirds of that GDP comes from our consumer. But over there, they have a rising middle class that is greater than the size of our entire population. And it really is all about this emerging consumer in a way. And I know that a lot of people now are very focused on India in the same way. But because we've had such a tight relationship from a supply chain situation, uh, man, manufacturing, um, it, it, it has worked, you know, and it's worked that we've actually disregarded some of these human rights sorts of issues. I mean, not, not me. I, I mean, we're all saying we But you hear what think, I'm saying. No, it's, just, it's, it's odd to me. And, and by the way, the consumer in China really hasn't come back the way that we thought the consumer would come back because China can throttle that growth whenever they want, and they seem to be tamping it down despite themselves, and I, I don't get that either. I think it's a tailwind, by the way. I think China growth in the second half of 23 is something that people are underestimating. And, and I would just get back to a lot of the big themes that we thought about, why Intel is spending uh, tens of billions of dollars and why they are going to be partnering with a number, a number of infrastructure firms. All this nearshoring, all of this you know, new strategic relationships is very inflationary. Um, it's very time-consuming. It's not going to happen overnight. And, and I just think that that's, that's the world we live in. I think, I think, so back to a question is, what's the discount you put on some of these companies that have to rely on China? I think you have to think about it. I get back to a market where Apple's smartphone share in China is 22.3% um, last time I looked. And, and that's major. And we, you know... Tim Cook has done a phenomenal job of kind of navigating below the radar screen. But at some point, Apple has the biggest target on their back. The thorny issue, though, or the conundrum is that you put a discount on the companies that rely on China, that operate out of China. And you and you also put it sounds like a discount on companies that are going to be nearshoring because it's inflationary. And I mean, <laughs> it's sort of like in this transition period. It's going to be very difficult. But listen, Elon said it last week to David Faber. I mean, like he took all focus back on, on Apple, to your point. And, you know, when you think about their exposure there, just obviously from a sales standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint and all the investment that they have made on that, I, I do think it's kind of interesting here. And I look at that Apple chart, man. Oof, that looks like the mother of all double tops. And to your point, Mel, there is no discount placed on an Apple trading where it is at 27 or 28 times or anything like that. So there's no discount anywhere in the market that I can find for any of these things, these headwinds that we detail, whether it's the debt ceiling, whether it's slowing growth, whether it's a deep recession, there is no discount anywhere. And I think we're just back to a YOLO market here, people. And, and last thing, just, just to make it a trading thing, because obviously Dan, Dan sees a double top. I see a breakout in oh. Apple, and that's what makes markets. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for more on all of this, let's bring in Yale University senior fellow Stephen Roach on the fast line. He's a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Stephen is also the author of Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, great to have you with us. Um, what did this ban on Micron feel like to you? Was it symbolic? Do you think that this is just the first step in many that China will take? Well, thanks, Melissa. Um, I'm surprised it took this long. Actually, they telegraphed this, as you said at the uh, the beginning of um the show um uh, in 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 early april and uh i think we just have to s- step back and take a deep breath the us took major action against china china's technology 
in early October with these draconian uh, export sanctions on China's access to advanced semiconductors. They need uh, those chips for their key uh, innovations in um, AI and quantum computing. Uh, the U.S. also corralled a couple of allies, Japan uh, and the Netherlands, to join in these sanctions, uh, in this case, uh, squeezing out China's access to the um, uh, semiconductor uh, production uh, uh, technology. So these are major, major actions that we took, we initiated. Our justification is uh, we've lost patience with China's uh, uh, failure to distinguish between civilian and military applications of technology. So we're going to squeeze them in, in, uh, in the entire space. The um, retaliation against Micron uh, technology is peanuts compared to what we have done to China. So I think um, your, your gang sitting there is right to think that um, there is more to come. I have no idea who will be next. Uh, somebody just talked about Apple as having the biggest target on its back. Uh, that's, you know... Certainly correct, but we have no idea if they, they would dare uh, to do that, given the commitment that Apple has made to offshoring in um, uh, China, even though they're starting to move a little bit of a way away. But this is just the beginning of what I think is going to be a series of major battles in the tech war. Stephen, you mentioned that um, our actions versus China were draconian um, back in the fall. And so let me ask you this. When you're thinking about something that is so important, you just mentioned it to a whole host of industries in China, access to these advanced chips. Does this sort of ban force them to come up to speed and actually make them more competitive? And doing it this way, does that become more of a risk for maybe U.S. manufacturers here? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's precisely their response. But as you guys alluded to earlier, you know, China's been, uh, you know, talking the talk about bringing their domestic semiconductor industry up to um, world standards now for years and years. It's a difficult thing to do. And so they are redoubling their efforts right now. There's no question about it. And I'm confident they will get there. But it's not going to be this year or next year. It's going to be several years out. And in the meantime, they are very vulnerable to the restrictions that we're imposing on their access to the chips they need to drive uh, their indigenous innovation. In the China playbook, Stephen, is it your view that the retaliation for the CHIPS Act will remain within the tech sector, or could it go another route and hit another industry? Look, there are, there are no rules uh, that require uh, you know, a, a tit-for-tat to be exactly in, you know, in the same industry that the initial actions were taken. We've done that a lot. We've, you know, we started out uh, with a trade war that was very narrow and then accelerated into a tech war, and now we're talking the talk of a Cold War. But in doing that, the issues have moved from trade uh, to uh, human rights uh, to um, uh, economic coercion. I mean, we, we were, we're not at a loss of rationales to come up with, and they keep morphing from one uh, to another. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if China were to uh, follow the same uh, script uh, in its own retaliation. 
Stephen, as you think about, and certainly in your role, Morgan Stanley, back in the day, you've been a pioneer for capital markets in that part of the world, and you understand those markets, and, and you see how underinvested EM is, and you know that China's 40% of EM. Um, do you see a world where we can decouple this kind of story? Because, uh, you know, to the extent that China has also been a very difficult place to invest for people, uh, we're talking about American firms and the exposure over there, but, but just investing in China, you know, can, can you give us just your couple of thoughts here on uh, whether the fundamentals of the economic growth that I think is going to maybe surprise people in the second half of the year relative to where everything's priced. Um, you know, can you make a call on that? Yeah, I can. It's an uncomfortable call. I've been a congenital bull on China for 25 years. Uh, I do buy the, the point that you're making um, about uh, stronger than expected growth in the second half of this year. But I, I'm worried about uh, 2024 through, uh, you know, the end of this decade, because China's got some structural problems that they're finding it very difficult to address. Demography is a given. Their working-age population is going to be shrinking for years and years to come. And so they need more productivity growth to offset that. And by focusing on state-owned enterprises as a source of growth, where productivity is the weakest, they're not going to get it there. And by putting pressure on the private sector, especially the Internet platform companies, as they have unfortunately done over the last couple of years, they're not going to get it there. So I'm sort of stuck in a, in a much more challenging and difficult medium to longer term growth call than I've had, ever had on China uh, in, in the period that I've been covering them. All right, Stephen, great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Stephen Roach of Yale. Um, the other twist to the, I mean, is if the U.S. goes into recession, then the manufacturing sector in China doesn't catch a break, Tim, right? And so that's another area of pressure on the economy. I think companies that are have a lot to gain by China are European companies. And I, and I think of some of the big exporters from Europe into into that region. And I, I think that's another one of the reasons why international looks a little bit more interesting, especially with the currency implications. I, I would just say, I do think they're different, and, and, and I do think that we've talked about BABA and um, where it's still a trade. It's not an investment. And I look at you know a year of consolidation in a lot of these names, all things being equal to the environment we have today. I think BABA's going higher. I think there's a trade here. And again, the sum of the parts and the spinoff of their cloud company is, is a catalyst. A lot of these, whether it's the FXI or the K-Web or even the EEM, um, all ways to play China are, are kind of right up against some levels. And if the dollar weakens, I think they all go higher. Think about the other, the EV industry that's staring us in the face. Eight, you heard Farley, the, the CEO of Ford, mention it today. You could buy up all the lithium and copper and cobalt that you want, but 80% of the processing is done in China. That's the next one that could, they could really tighten the noose around America's necks as we start to segue into more EVs. Coming up, all the headlines out of J.P. Morgan's Investor Day, what CEO Jamie Dimon had to say about growth, the economy, and much more. we got the details next. Plus, two sneaker stocks getting kicked. Shares of Nike and Foot Locker dropping again as analysts turn sour on the names, how the inventory overhang is impacting this space. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warning of higher rates in a tighter credit market while speaking at the company's investor day today. The bank also upping its net interest income outlook for the year by $3 billion thanks to its takeover of First Republic. Leslie Picker has been following the event today. She joins us now. Leslie. 
Hey, Melissa, shares of J.P. Morgan closing in the red today despite that higher net interest income guide at the firm's investor day. Diamond spoke about the overall fallout from the bank turmoil we've seen this year and predicting there will be a credit cycle pointing to real estate as the offsides as the Fed continues to tighten. You're already seeing credit tightening up because, you know, the easiest way for a bank to retain capital is not to make the next loan. So I think you are going to see that. And I think everyone should be prepared for rates going higher from here. You know, that if that five percent is not enough in Fed funds, if I and I've been advising this to clients and banks, you should be prepared for six, seven. Speaking of being prepared, succession was the key topic at the end of the Q&A in light of future movements within the C-suites of Morgan Stanley and Lazard. Diamond says he still has the grit to do the job. I can't do this forever. I know that. Uh, uh, But my intensity is the same. I think when I don't have that kind of intensity, I should leave. I don't think CEOs should retire in place and, you know, just cut back and take it easy for a while. I think that erodes the whole company over time. Now, when asked how much longer he plans to be CEO, he chuckled three and a half more years, likely a nod to that stock option bonus he got in 2021. All right, Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker uh, from the J.P. Morgan uh, Investment Day meeting. It's interesting to hear to hear him say prepare for rates that are higher than five percent, six, seven, eight. And also in terms of credit reserves, they're preparing for peak unemployment of five point eight percent in 2024. Is this all just being extremely conservative because that is the safer thing to do? Or do you think that there is a belief that rates could go to six, seven percent? I don't think he would have said that if he doesn't think about it. And then you think about all this Fed speak that we've seen really that got started with Lori Logan last week and Kashkari. And I mean, these these folks seem really determined to break the back of inflation without acknowledging the fact that inflation is likely to stay more elevated than they had hoped prior to the pandemic. And the likelihood now is that whatever you think like normal rates are, you know, um, they're going to be much higher for longer. And whether it's, you know, tops out at six or seven percent for Fed funds. I don't know how the stock market closed unchanged. I, there was a world that we used to live in in the stock market where if someone told you that the, the CEO of the largest bank with the most credibility on the planet said be prepared for much higher rates, that means for longer and equities could just stay bid here. That seems very odd to me. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, I, I agree with Dan wholeheartedly here. I mean, we've got a lot of things sort of working in concert in tandem that I think are going to pressure this. First of all, there is just the supply and demand for money issue. I mean, I do believe that, you know, the inflation genie is a tough one to stuff back in the bottle. So for those that are expecting some kind of rate cuts in the near term future, I just don't see that happening. And of course, that's the short end of the curve. On the long end, basically, if you start to see some credit tightening within the banks and there's still demand for it, uh, you know, that's obviously going to create a problem. And there's something else, too, which is that You know, when we think about what a normalized rate condition should be, most people are only looking back with a a lens that goes back to the GFC, which is not a realistic lens to use. I mean, if we just go back a little bit further than that, the rate environment in which we currently find ourselves is not so extraordinary. And I think that's really what people should focus on. We, We got away with very cheap and plentiful money for a decade plus And that just can't go on forever. And I don't think we should expect it to return anytime soon. And that's going to create a lot of pressure in a lot of areas. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The other shoe has dropped. Analysts tripped up on Foot Locker results. And they think Nike could follow. 
It's time to lace up. More on the footwear flop next. Plus, the latest on debt ceiling negotiations. So can lawmakers strike a deal? The economic impact as the deadline draws near. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. A double shot of buzzkills in the athletic wear space. Foot Locker shedding another 8.5% today. That is on top of its 27% post earnings drop from Friday. City downgrading the stock to a neutral, slashing its price target to $30 from $48. The bank also put Nike on negative catalyst watch, citing higher inventory levels and a more cautious consumer as reasons for concerns ahead. Those shares down. Uh, about 4% today's session. We talked about that. We really surrounded the trade on Friday. <laughs> um, who knew how much pressure the stocks would continue to feel today, Tim? Well, we, you know, we talked about where Nike is, what percent of sales of Dick's, excuse me, of Foot Locker, and where they've got a read-through to not only people like Dick's, but, you know, Decker's, all kinds of, but lower-income consumer is, is what's in focus here. And what we forget to talk about is that excuse me, Foot Locker, uh, is 9 to 10% of Nike's North America sales and 6% of their global sales. This is significant, but it's a read-through to their inventory. And, and, and there's a read-through to a lower-income consumer, and there's a discussion about inventory, and there's now a presumption and at least a question within the analyst community as to what are they going to do with sales versus margin? Are, are they going to promote their way out of this and knock down the inventory and, and kill their margin? And they might. Look, I'm short Nike, and I'm short it for the last you know, six to eight weeks, not because it's a terrible company, but for, honestly, these reasons. I, I just don't think this multiple is supposed to hold up, especially with a, with a major pull forward. And, and I do think we're going to start to see it from the lower income consumer and it's going to feed through. And it's going to feed through to Lulu's multiple. Yeah. When you look at Foot Locker on a chart, it ripped through that was October levels 2022. And, and the problem that you have with these stocks is that the analyst community always after the event, they always rush in and there's always the downgrades that follow on. That's what we saw. Mm -hmm. And you probably see a little bit more of it in the next couple of days. But I think you have to wait and take a shot at it at around 23, which is a big gap from where it is right now. But that's the support I see. And that's the July 2022 levels. I would take a shot there. But if you want to take a shot here, don't do it all at once, 25 percent and uh, do a couple of those. You seem to like Dick's because you mentioned a few times, but when I look at this one and I think about like less of exposure to a Nike and more diversified, um, this one's kind of interesting to me, but it just broke that uptrend that had been in place since mid-2022. So I think the whole space appears to be softening a little bit here. All right. Coming up, President Biden meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for debt ceiling negotiations. That meeting kicking off any minute now. We'll bring you the details as we get them. And RBC's Lori Calvacino will help us break down the headlines as we get them. The impact on the markets and your money straight ahead. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks largely flat as debt ceiling negotiations continue. The Dow dropping 140 points, the S&P virtually unchanged, and the Nasdaq higher by half a percent. A big energy deal making headlines today. Chevron buying shale firm PDC Energy in a stock and debt deal worth more than $7 billion. Chevron saying the move will increase the company's oil and gas footprint in the United States. And in the after hours, shares of Zoom giving back early gains after reporting results. The company posting a beat on the top and bottom line, raising guidance for the year, but not as much as their beat. Hmm. Stocks up uh, less than a percent now. Turning to the debt ceiling talks, President Biden meeting now with House Speaker McCarthy as party leaders try to reach a deal and avoid a U.S. debt default. CNBC's Kayla Tausch is at the White House with the latest. Kayla. 
Melissa, that meeting is expected to happen momentarily. It's the first time in a week since the two sides appointed a smaller group of deputies to lead negotiations. And Speaker McCarthy is currently on his way over to the White House from the Capitol. Those talks have still been eluded by big picture items like the levels of government spending and the time frame of any budget caps, which are critical top lines even before getting down to nittier, grittier details. Republicans have proposed increases to defense and border spending with steep cuts to other programs, while the White House proposal would keep discretionary spending flat. Given the distance in those positions I just laid out, a White House official tells me expectations are low for a deal tonight, but Speaker McCarthy earlier today said it's possible. I thought it would be better to have a deal sooner. I think we could we can get a deal tonight, we could get a deal tomorrow, but you've got to get something done this week to be able to pass it and move it to the Senate. He said to get a deal, tough decisions would need to be made. And ahead of the meeting today, Secretary Yellen updated Congress on the deal deadline and said by as early as June 1st, it's highly likely the government can't pay its bills. A week ago, the secretary said it was just likely. We're also expecting to hear directly from Speaker McCarthy when the meeting concludes, and we may hear from President Biden as well. We'll see what sort of tone they're striking after that meeting concludes, Melissa. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche from the White House. For more on all this, let's bring Lori Calvacina, RBC's head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Lori, great to have you with us. I mean, everybody's watching this, but when it comes to the market's performance, even over the next six months, how important is this? Well, thanks for having me as always, Melissa. Look, look, I think that this is a huge issue right now. Um, as I've talked to investors over the last month or so, some of the more bearish people we've talked to have been very focused on the debt ceiling as a potential trigger to see a short-term drawdown in the U.S. equity market. And I, frankly, a lot of those investors are coming from outside of the U.S. They are people who are inclined to be negative on the U.S. for other reasons as well. Um, but I do think that if we can get a deal here, it is going to remove an important issue that the bears have really been pointing to in coming months that could pull this market down. How do you view what, where those drawdowns might be from, Lori? I mean, is, is tech, because it's seen the biggest gains, is that the area? Or is tech, because it's defensive, will that be safe? relatively speaking. So it's a great question, Melissa. And the answer is it's a little bit of both. We actually went back and we've mapped out the equity market response to every single drawdown around the debt ceiling going back to 2011. And when we looked at sector performance within the S&P during those drawdown periods, we found that the worst performing areas were the value oriented sectors, financial energy, uh, materials, and industrials. The defensive sectors obviously held up the best, um, though healthcare was the worst performing defensive, and tech and the growth sectors were right smack dab in the middle. Um, so I do think that tech gets hurt, but it probably holds up better uh, than some of those more cyclically oriented areas if we don't get a deal. So, Lori, we, we haven't really seen the market uh, come in at all. It didn't come in on earnings, and I, and I think what kind of masked it was Earnings were bad at the back half of uh, 2022, but energy sort of masked that. Now when we're looking at the debt ceiling negotiations, the market has not stuttered or taken a step back. So when we eventually see this deal, A, do you think the deal is going to be done in the 11th hour? Because it doesn't behoove either side to get a deal done before the 30th of May. And B, where does the market rip to if it does rip at all? Or do you think that's totally factored in? 
So look, I think that's a that's a bunch of great questions. And I would say last year, we do think the equity market essentially priced in a recession at those October lows, really pre-traded 2023 back in 2022. And I think one of the reasons why the market hasn't drawn down that much is that the markets understand that this has happened before. Now, when I talk to non-US-based investors, they're very worried about the debt ceiling. When you talk to US-based investors, they're feeling increasingly worse about it, but they're like, okay, you know, a deal generally does get done. So I think people in the states have been holding their breath, understanding how this political theater tends to play out. And so what we've seen is really more rotation than pulling money out of the market because of that latter group of investors thinking something will get done at the 11th hour. I think what's been interesting to me about this debt ceiling issue is that it's just been another excuse for investors to rotate into tech and growth stocks and pull money out of cyclicals. Uh, You know, kind of we pre-traded the Fed pause at the beginning of the year. It triggered that rotation. Then we had SVB. Then we had these great tech earnings. And this is like the fourth thing we've had that's pushed people into tech stocks because of a rotation argument. Um, So I think it's fascinating. You know, I will say in terms of, you know, kind of potential upside from here, you know, we're at 4,100 on the S&P as our year-end target. We still like that number. Um, we do think valuations are about where they deserve to be. But I'll f- be honest with you, I have some models that could take us up to 4,200, that could take us up to 4,300. So we have said we see more upside risk than downside risk to the market this year. That being said, we've got to get through this debt ceiling issue. I mean, this is this is really a significant hurdle we've got to get through. I am optimistic because the two sides are finally talking, but I do think it makes sense that people have been waiting and, and holding their breath to see what happens. Um, a reason for optimism is two sides talking. That's kind of a low <laughs> bar. Uh, but Lori, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you. <laughs> Lori Thanks Calvacina. for having me. If, if we've already pre-traded, is there a, a sell the news uh, event. I mean, is, is reaching a deal a sell the news event, Tim? I if think that's so. so I think do so. we see the sale happen in technology? Well, I, I just look the flight to quality here. Um, you know, we can look at Nasdaq and we can see Microsoft's down four percent from all time highs. Apple six. Uh, Google, which seems like it was an from only nine percent down from all time highs. So there's no question tech's been defensive here. Five five hundred basis points higher in rates. They, these stocks just don't belong at these multiples. But um, you know. What's also going to happen, if just say we got downgraded, and I don't think it's going to happen, uh, treasuries will rally. They'll rally like crazy, and the dollar will rally like crazy. And some of this will be very good for markets at some point. Um, so, and again, after it's really awful for markets. But I, I do think uh, right now equities have priced in very little, and if anything, they've kind of rallied in the face of this. And, yes, I think there's going to be probably a sell the news. Yeah. Mike, your take? Yeah, I mean, take a look at what Yellen has said. She thinks the deadline is. And then take a look at how the options markets are implying that the S&P is going to move over the course of that same time frame. So we're now looking out to, let's call it the third or fourth week of June. And if you take a look at the at-the-money straddle for the S&P, this is only about 3.3%. And what that tells me is that a lot of investors, certainly stateside, really believe that there's going to be you know, an end to this before some sort of crisis is reached. And I think if that is true, if they're baking in a solution then it's hard to see why you would buy it if you got one, because that is what is already expected. So I'm with Tim. I think you would have to sell that. All right. Coming up, office vacancies taking a toll on the real estate space, the regions and stocks most at risk as a work from home trend persists. That's next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big cities facing big problems when it comes to empty office space. The high rate of vacancy has driven price per square foot down to less than half of pre-pandemic levels, according to new data. Our Diana Olick joins us now from Los Angeles with the story. Diana. 
Well, Melissa, Los Angeles may be a smaller office market than Manhattan, but it has even bigger problems. The office vacancy rate in L.A. soared to 22.5% in the first quarter this year. It represents 50 million square feet of non-leased office space, about 61% more than pre-pandemic. And L.A. office leasing volume in Q1 of this year also way down. What is leased, though, is still not being used very much. Average occupancy in L.A. is 49 percent, slightly lower than the national average. L.A. is not quite as bad as San Francisco, where the vacancy rate is 23 percent. But looking across the nation, Chicago at 22, D.C. actually at 18 percent. And Manhattan, even though we touted that it had hit this record high vacancy, it's at 17 percent. So let's talk L.A. REITs and stocks involved in this. The ones with the biggest exposure are Douglas Emmett, Kilroy Realty and Hudson Pacific properties. The first two down about 25 to 30 percent year to date and Hudson Pacific down over 50 percent. Douglas Emmett by far, though, has the most exposure. But all of these are heavy in West L.A. or in other areas surrounding downtown L.A. And as with everywhere else, there is a flight to quality with newer buildings that have more amenities, seeing more demand, older buildings suffering more. Melissa. All right, Diana, thank you, Diana Olick. And, of course, we're seeing the pain felt across uh, office REITs in particular. SL Green, for, I mean, today was a good day for Vernado and for SL Green, but SL Green was trading at levels not seen since its IPO back in 1997. Mike, what's your take on, on the pain in this space and whether or not there's more to come? Yeah, I, I suspect that there's going to be more to come. Look, it sounds awfully negative today, I guess, when we take a look at it. And, of course, I'm based in the San Francisco area, so it's easy for me to be negative when I think about, uh, you know, basically anything in the commercial real estate side because it's a pretty dismal picture out here. When you see these occupancy rates, that's part of it. And when you see the lease rates, that's certainly part of it. When you see where these buildings, that's the assets that underpin these businesses, are actually valued. We've had some big office properties trade just recently at 80% discounts to where they were valued just a couple of years ago. And these are these are buildings that are going to need significant investment if they're going to try to be competitive. I just don't see a lot of people uh, rushing in to buy these things. And that's a really difficult situation. You have levered businesses. You have asset values falling precipitously and no cash flow. That's That's not a healthy mixture. When you look at the maturity wall that we've all been talking about in the commercial real estate world, if Jamie Dimon's world happens and we're looking at interest rates rising from here, then you're not going to be able to make this story any better. So every time you tried to bottom fish and bargain hunt in this sector, it's collapsed further on you. So I would I would wait to see what rates do first. Coming up, Pfizer entering the ring in the battle of the bulge and the results could give Ozempic a run for its money. Got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pfizer jumping more than 5% after a peer-reviewed study found the drug maker's orally ingested weight loss treatment may be as effective as Novo Nordisk Ozempic. The dosage of Pfizer's drug is much higher than that of Novo's injectable, helping trial participants drop weight in less time. Shares of Pfizer seeing their best day since December 2021, now 7% off its recent lows. For more, uh, we're joined on the Fast Line by Colin Bristow, the Managing Director of Biotechnology at UBS. Colin, great to have you with us. Um, you say straight off the bat that this is the same data cut that we saw earlier. So you're saying the markets are getting this wrong? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's been a bit of a knee-jerk reaction and maybe a sort of misperception in terms of what's really new or, or kind of novel to the market here. And when we saw the headline weight loss figures first presented at a diabetes conference in September last year, 
and then Pfizer re-emphasized them at their pipeline day in December. So there's really not a ton that's new here that would really sort of change our perception of this drug in terms of the competitiveness of the clinical profile. Mm-hmm. You've got a neutral rating on, on Pfizer. I mean, if this is not going to get you more excited, this data cut doesn't get you more excited. You know, Pfizer still has dwindling COVID-19 sales. It's got a patent cliff that it's facing. So what will help this? More more data, further data on this weight loss drug? Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about a few important points here as to sort of what's holding us from getting too excited. So Aside from the fact that the data is not new, the, the actual weight loss efficacy is, is still inferior to what is many consider this sort of key weight loss struggle that the market leader being Manjaro, uh, which has seen up to sort of 21, 22% headline weight loss figures. So what we're seeing today is significantly below that, or as we're, what we're looking at is in the type 2 diabetes population, uh, where Manjaro has shown uh, around a sort of 13% weight loss. Uh, at the end of the study. Furthermore, this is, you know, on a, on a sort of pure diabetic standpoint, this is a less competitive agent that the headline figures are, are inferior to Ozempic and Manjaro. And one thing that's really important here is the discontinuation rate. So at the highest dose of, of Daniblepron, the drug we're talking about, it was, it was 34% discontinuation rate. That's three to four times higher than what we're seeing with Manjaro or Ozempic. Another thing to consider, Daniel Glipron is dosed uh, twice a day, so it's less convenient than the once-daily oral drugs being developed by Novo or Lilly. And then just finally, like Pfizer are, are one year behind Lilly and, and maybe sort of two, maybe two to three years behind Novo. So these are all reasons why we're just, you know, we're being a little more measured here and, and not mm-hmm. getting uh, overly excited. All right, Colin, thank you for phoning in. Appreciate it. Colin Bristow of UBS. Uh, Tim, I immediately thought of you and your position in Pfizer. Well, what is very helpful here is that ultimately Pfizer doesn't get any credit for this drug. I mean, so if you think about what's actually actually been pushing Pfizer down is the sense of loss of growth from everything related to COVID. So um, the fact that uh, there's a pie, there's a universe, there's an addressable market of, of weight loss drugs. And, and to that extent, um, this is certainly a gain for Pfizer. The, the fact that um, Pfizer had already talked about this at their investor event, they talked about this back in December. Um, in some sense, it is a rehashing of old information. It's also an environment where we put very different multiples on drug companies because of exposure to that GLP-1 space, so diabetes and weight loss. Um, that is now uh, at least seen for Pfizer as an area of growth that's not at all priced in the stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything, I think it just offsets what is the sense of what do you do with Pfizer here? Right. You bought calls? Yeah, so I saw this news, and it's interesting. I mean, just think of the market cap shifts we've seen in this space and the differences in valuations and the sentiment so poor of this. So I saw this news, and I bought the July 40 calls. I paid 60 cents for I got to cut you off. We got to go to D.C. We're getting some uh, breaking news here. Leaders are gathering to negotiate on the debt ceiling. Uh, let's uh, listen in here. And uh, the consequence of failing to pay our bills would be that American people would have a real kick in their economic well-being. As a matter of fact, the rest of the world would, too. And uh, so we also agree we need to reduce the deficit. And I might add, uh, in my first two years as president, I reduced it by $1.7 trillion. It matters. So I'm all for reducing, continue to reduce the deficit. And uh, but we all we both talked about the need for a bipartisan agreement. We have to be in a position where we can sell it to our constituencies. We're pretty well divided in the House, almost down the middle, and it's not any different in the Senate. So we've got to get something that can sell to both sides. 
and uh, we need to cut spending, but we, uh, here's a disagreement. We have to, I think we should be looking at tax loopholes and uh, make sure the wealthy pay their fair share. I think revenue matters as well as, uh, as long as you're not taxing anybody under 400,000 bucks. And uh, so we're going to, we still have some disagreements, but I think we may be able to get where we have to go. We both know we have a significant responsibility. With that, I'm going to turn it over to the speaker. Kevin, it's all yours. Well, I thank the president for spending time. We had a very productive conversation yesterday, even though he was coming back from the G7 meeting. Um, I, we do have disagreements. I think we have, of a 50-year average, we're having more revenue at any time coming in. But I think we both agree that we need to change the trajectory uh, that our debt is too large, and I think at the end of the day we can find common ground, make our economy stronger, take care of this debt, but more importantly get this government moving again to curb inflation, make us less dependent upon China, and uh, make our appropriation system work when we get done, right? I'm all for making appropriations work. Now they're not Mr. President, is overall spending the way to resolve this, to agree on that kind of number? Not alone. Not that That's what's called a pool spray, because oh. all the members of the press gather in one room and they spray the room and that's what you get, a sort of cacophony at the end. Um, but they said that they uh, feel that they have common ground, that they could reach a deal, they know where they have to go. They're at least in the same room for this talk, Tim. I don't know if that makes you feel any better um, about avoiding a default. I I, I haven't felt like we were going to default. Um, I felt like there's enormous political posturing, and I think both sides have a lot to gain by certain stances that they're going to stick to. Um, but but I, I, it really gets back to the markets. Markets really have not priced in default. If we got a default, it would be a very significant shock to the markets. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say we're not getting that. And, and if anything, I think markets have rallied. Um, if you look at just you know, hedge fund exposure to S&P futures, for example, um, they're very, very underweight, the market here. Um, so while I do think this is a sell the, the fact kind of a thing, I think positioning right now still remains very cautious overall for the markets. I think it's easy to be very political when you're not in the same room with someone. And I think it's always a positive <laughs> when you see them in the same room and they have to be civil to one another. I think, um, uh, I think I'm looking at a May 30th deal. I think we're going to wait till the end of it, but we're, we're going to have a deal either way. All right. It is time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Mike Coe. Yeah, I'm kind of with Dan here. You know, we saw a lot of activity in Pfizer calls on the back of this news company is pretty cheap and all that COVID vaccine stuff's already been pulled out of it. It's big pharma in the final trade, Tim. Right. So let me go with Lilly, uh, a stock that uh, certainly we've been long with clients for a while. But I, I just think the multiple here, uh, you've priced in so much good news. What is Pfizer's gain is actually Lilly's loss on some level. Steve. A stock that has been horrendous on a performance basis. Rivian is finally starting to lift its head up. It's been terrible, but I'll take a shot here. Wow. Dan? Yeah. So in Pfizer, I would just say define your risk. Look out a couple months. See if you can get a little of this Lilly pixie dust going. So much OA in the show, too. Yeah. Mm, Good one. Great. Why wouldn't you? Have right. a lot of OA. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.